Hello, my name is John Smetanka, and the name of our program is With Respect. Today's guest on With Respect is Deborah Cohen, a historian, in fact, the Dean of History Department at uh, Northwestern University. And she's also an author of a book called The Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, which has got a great ring to it. And I think we're going to find out that the book itself has, has a ring to it also. Deborah Cohen, With Respect. Deborah, how are you today? I'm very well. I'm delighted to be with you. Well, I'm uh, I'm really happy because I, I found this book that you wrote uh, absolutely fascinating. But to really understand, I've got to ask you, where are you from originally? I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and have been at Northwestern for the last decade plus. What what um, you're you're chairman of the history department at uh, Northwestern University. But what happened between starting in Louisville and becoming dean of the uh, of the uh, history department? I, uh, as I said, I grew up in Louisville, and I grew up in Louisville, and I went to college um, at Harvard and to graduate school at Berkeley, and in there as well lived in uh, Germany and in Britain doing research. Um, I was trained as a modern European historian focusing on British and German history. So, all right, I love history. Uh, I'm not a historian, I'm a lawyer. But what about history is intrigues you? We've had a number of historians on our program, and each has a different history which brings them to, uh, to um, focus in that area. I think I was raised in a household where the history of Europe was very present. Uh, three of my four grandparents were immigrants and, you know, from the Russian Empire it, coming to Lovell. And in that sense, I think I grew up with almost a visceral sense of the past at, in, in little details. For instance, my grandmother's family had brought their pillows with them because they weren't sure that pillows would be the same in America <laughs> as what they were used to. Mm-hmm. And it was precisely that kind of texture of the past that I think was really part of the framework of my growing up. And then when I went to college and I studied history, I learned much more about the ways in which history as a discipline makes arguments and thinks about how, you know, how those kind of details fit into bigger structures and, and bigger explanations. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned this, uh, how you grew into it. Uh, there was a, a great show on Chicago radio uh, for a long period of time. Milton Rosenberg had a program on WGN uh, in the evenings. Oh, yes, of course, yes. And I, my first taste of doing a call-in to a radio show was that. I, I, I always said, why would people do that? But the program was so interesting. Uh, had a number of historians on there. They were arguing about um, the various theories of history, the great man or the great event or the, exactly. the great tide uh, of, you know, or the cultural uh, basis for history. Um, and, and listening to them, just evoke, evoked a number of things that, that in growing up in my family, we had the same thing. Our, to us, um, when we were growing up for both mom and dad's side of the family, 
and our parents themselves, history was really important. And uh, we came from uh, an Irish background and a Polish background, immigration in back in the 1800s. But there was a retention of the events of the old days, which was real inside of our parents, even though there were three generations or more away from the old country. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm understanding what you're saying. Um, it's, it's like, uh, well, we would drive around in the country uh, as a family, and uh, all the members of our family at different times would start off a conversation, the adults, saying, say, did you see uh, Helen uh, Hover last week? Yeah, I did. Isn't she the one who was married to? And you went, and there was this long sort of <laughs> <laughs> lead into, and you found all about Helen's uh, mother, her aunt, her, where they came from, et cetera, et cetera. But it was all a texture, that a, a basis uh, for uh, talking about where what they had to say. And uh, so... Do you, where do you put so yourself? This. Yeah, so it's precisely in a way this kind of kitchen table conversation yeah. that I became very interested in because, um, as you know from the book, I'm both a historian of you know, the political world of 20th century Europe, but also of the private worlds that people inhabit, mm-hmm. the kind of life of the soul, the life of the mind, emotions. Yep. Mm-hmm. private lives. And one of the things, so in the book that just immediately preceded this one last called The Hotel Imperial, I wrote a different book called, another book called Family Secrets. And there what I was really interested in is the ways in which society changes without necessarily making a mark in public life so that what we think about is the great moments of social transformation so like the march, the congressional testimony, the new laws, I argued in that book were in fact preceded by, you know, thousands and thousands of changes that were already happening in families mm-hmm. about their attitude towards social stigmas. Um, and so that the, you know, the, the big transformations that we can see, the ones that are visible to us, in fact, build upon all of those thousands of changes that have already happened in people's consciousness. So, so I think I was always interested in exactly that relationship between, you know, who was Helen married to in the past and, you know, a big conversation about marriage law in general or mm-hmm. about family transformations, so, the status of women. So if you had to put yourself in one camp or the other, is history the story of great people, great movements, great cultures, great events, what? Well, I think it's all of these things. And in a sense, the reporters who were at the heart of Last Call at the Hotel Imperial are themselves responsible for promoting a certain great man theory of history. That certainly when I was trained as a historian, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, people were very suspicious of because we were interested in social history, mm-hmm. cultural history, in the kind of view from below so that if you were going to ask, why does Hitler come to power in Germany in the 30s, you wouldn't start with Hitler. <laughs> Whereas this is exactly where the reporters start. Um, instead, historians were getting at questions that the reporters couldn't hope to answer about public opinion, you know, about systematic mm-hmm. surveys of public opinion that were being done sometimes secretively in the 1930s. Well, so, Yeah. So let's take let's let's take, walk into the book and, and look at it. This is a book about a number of fascinating individuals. A number of these uh, names that come that come up are people that I grew up um, hearing about from my parents or reading about in books myself or in newspapers. So a, a number of these folks. Um, were already in my uh, attention span. Um, now, I'm not sure that everybody in the world was like that, that, uh, that uh, the name of John Gunther or the name of Dorothy Thompson would mean something as much to them as it does to me. But um, these are two names, and I can, we can go through some of the other names, of people who represented, correct me if I'm wrong, 
a style and a phenomenon of journalism that uh, and wordsmithing that um, dominated a period of maybe twenty or thirty years in the thoughts and the word, the, the speeches and the writings of uh, uh, of an, an era. That's exactly right. So the the people, the journalists at the heart of the book, are the people, you know, who, in many ways, set the mold for the romantic vision of the foreign correspondent in the interwar period. So when we think about the movies that are made about reporting, especially about foreign correspondents and the American foreign correspondent in particular, um, this is, these people are living the lives and doing the work that is very much the basis for that image. Um, there, uh, there's a quartet of reporters at the heart of the book, John Gunther, whom you mentioned. Um, the reason why you know, he is also, if he's a figure to people today, it's for two reasons. One, because the books that he wrote were printed in the millions, so many people grew up with you know, seeing them on their parents' or grandparents' bookshelves, even if they didn't read them. And he did have one book um, that endured for quite a long time, um, into the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s, and that was his Death Be Not Proud, his 1949 book about the illness and death of his son Johnny, which was required school reading in the United States. So that's Gunther, Dorothy Thompson, as you say, someone who is less well-known than you might expect her to be, given that she was the first American woman to have a political column of her own. She was the first American woman to helm a major overseas news bureau. She was the first American reporter to be kicked out of Nazi Germany. Um, her star faded, and maybe we'll get to this very quickly, after the Second World War. And then the other two figures are H.R. Knickerbocker, who was uh, one of the... the just sort of as raw fame in the interwar period. If you were alive then, you surely would have known him. He, H.R. Knickerbocker was a reporter who interviewed all of the major political figures of the moment, including Mussolini, Hitler. He interviewed Mussolini actually four times. Mussolini claimed that H.R. Knickerbocker was the only reporter who he, foreign reporter whose dispatches he bothered to read all the way through. Um, Knickerbocker came to work for the Hearst Papers, so he was also widely syndicated. He won a Pulitzer Prize for foreign correspondence. Um, he's an unknown figure, pretty much by anyone today. And then the last person is uh, Vincent Sheehan, otherwise known as Jimmy Sheehan, who published the landmark book, The 1935 Personal History, which is actually a book that I grew up reading because my father loved it. It won the first National Book Award for memoir in the memoir autobiography category and really set a generational template for the ways in which Americans came to think about an engaged life. But you have also some fascinating people. First of all, yes, I remember when I was a kid, um, before you were born, well before you were born, seeing on the shelves of my family uh, John Gunther's um, Inside Europe, and I think also Inside USA, uh, which were f fascinating. Well, I didn't understand a word of them because I wasn't uh, that advanced of a reader at four years old. But I remember, th <laughs> I remember the titles, and I remember um, bits and pieces of how uh, discussions around me, uh, f uh, um, among the the adults, uh, when they talked about what was going on in the world uh, during the war uh, and post, um, primarily post-war. Um, it was, these names were magic. They were, I don't want to say ghosts. They weren't ghosts. They were real people sitting in our, in our living rooms, participating in conversations. Um, because, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And this is true. You know, they, these are the people who many Americans would have known the world through. So they were um, widely syndicated, distributed, they wrote books, they were on the radio, they had radio programs, um, they were in the newsreels. So they were really people who were, as I say in the book, they're equally every bit as famous as their novel writing Lost Generation counterparts, Ernest Hemingway and Ed Scott Fitzgerald. They are, you know, household names. 
and in part because people invoke them all of the time. So Mm -hmm. if you are really afraid about war coming, you might have said, you know, or you might have read John Gunther's Inside Europe, which is a book that is widely thought to be, at the time, uh, a text that had really put the wind up in people's um, you know, consciousness about the dictators rising across the European continent. We're going to take a break right now because you've hit on a topic I want to follow through on. Um, <clears throat> we'll do that after the break. I'm talking about the rise of dictatorships and how these reporters, these journalists, I should say, because there's a difference, um, uh, inspired or created or uh, whatever brought that world... Uh, into uh, the American consciousness. Uh, this is John Smetanka Run. guest this week, Deborah Cohen, who is the Dean of the uh, History Department at the University of, at Northwestern University, and historian of her own right, and author of Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. This is John Smetanka. So Dorothy, uh, pardon me, uh, uh, Deborah, I'm, I'm keep uh, have Dorothy Thompson on my mind because I want to talk about her a lot. <laughs> I, I would be very happy to be confused ah. with Dorothy Thompson. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm really happy about John Gunther and and John Adams and so on. <clears throat> I don't fit into that in that uh, class though. All right, so we talked about uh, this particular book. John Gunther wrote um, um, uh, inside Europe, inside the United States. But there was a run-up to that. Each of the people you mentioned came from somewhere. And I think the fact that you point out in your book, where they came from uh, was unique. Um, One would have expected a lot of the great foreign reporters or journalists or writers to have come from uh, New York, uh, Washington, Boston, Los Angeles, San Francisco. But many of them didn't. Tell me about this. No, they are Midwesterners, or they come from the South. So, yeah, so when I began the book, I was, you know, I anticipated that these people, because they become international celebrities, because they're confidants of presidents and prime ministers, I had expected that they would come from, you know, the Ivy League or the East, East Coast boarding schools from families of means. But most of them come from pretty modest upbringings and from Midwestern upbringings. So Vincent Sheehan, whose personal history was such a sensation, was born and raised in the mining town of Pena, Illinois. John Gunther was raised uh, on Chicago's north side. Darcy Thompson was the daughter of a minister. That fact is not uh, coincidental. She was very much a preacher of a sort (laughs) in her own um, public persona, and she was born in a small town outside Buffalo, but also educated in part in Chicago. And H.R. Knickerbocker was born in Yoakum, Texas, and also the son of a minister. So these kind of second-generation um, children preaching about the subject, the secular subject, uh, mm-hmm. but almost in uh, a, a kind of urgent, um, moralistic tone, and that is about the future of democracy. And how did they end up in going to uh, to uh, Europe or wherever, you, Asia? You talk about their trips to Asia and whatnot. Uh, but how did they end up there? What brought them there? They were frustrated, young, restless people who, like so many other young Americans in the 1920s, were fed up with American moralism. You know, if you think about H.L. Mencken and his critiques of the American bourgeoisie, they were fed up with temperance, uh, with any kind of you know, anti-sex attitudes that they identified, conformity. And the center of culture for them was Europe. And that's where they went, like so many other young Americans. If you think about you know, 
the lost generation types hanging out in the cafes of Paris. They go to Europe. They begin to travel more widely, uh, courtesy of their newspaper work. And while at the beginning, most of them want still to write fiction. They want to be novelists. They want to do art. Eventually, what happens is that they find themselves getting drawn in to the, exactly the political struggles that they are commenting upon. And so how they begin is that they begin as kind of freelance um, stringer types out in the world working for big city newspapers. So the um, Chicago Daily News or the Chicago Tribune or the Philadelphia Public Ledger. Um, there were a number of American newspapers in this era of the 1920s that were building up their stable of foreign correspondence with the idea that what America needed now, what the United States needed, were Americans reporting the foreign news, not just trusting in foreigners' perceptions or you know, whatever kind of message they wanted to broadcast, but instead having young Americans as the eyes and ears abroad. So that's how they get their start. And then, you know, they come, they, someone like John Gunther, for instance, um, is on the staff of the Chicago Daily News, quits his job <laughs> because he wants to be a foreign correspondent. And they say, you know, no, you're not wise and mature enough. You haven't served your time. And he decides to hell with it. He quits his job and he goes off and he manages to get uh, jobs, you know, filling in at the AP and UP and then finally the Chicago Daily News very reluctantly hires him back on to staff and eventually he gets a bureau of his own which is in Vienna um, in the early 1930s and of course there and all the other places they are they've got a ringside seat onto this big political contest that is playing out across the world and between fascism the rising dictators um, Soviet communism and democracy now you you have uh, hit on something which I I think we have to you have a phrase that you used. Um, many people in our audience will understand it, but I, just for those who don't, you talk about the lost generation, and that has a special connotation. It came from um, somebody who coined the phrase, but it describes a group of people, many Americans, who um, were in Europe after the First World War. How did that, describe those people generally, because we, and some of the people that are in that group of lost generation, that, that's also fascinating. Yes, yeah, so the lost generation in America um, is a term that is popularized by Hemingway, and he gets it from Gertrude Stein, um, the poet, who hears it being said by a French auto uh, mechanic to one of his employees, you're all a lost generation. Um, what that means in the American context is a group of people, and this is both men and women, who were either on the younger side to have served, so they might have been in uniform without seeing a lot of real combat action, um, but grew up in the shadow of the war, feeling that all of the important causes have passed them by, and that what they do, and this is part of the argument that the critic Malcolm Cowley makes is that they embrace art for art's sake, that they find in artistic innovation the kind of cause that maybe an earlier generation might have found in the Russian Revolution or in some other kind of political mo movement. Um, the story that Malcolm Cowley tells in Exile's Return is that they come back to the United States, so they sort of squander their youth, running up debts, um, depending upon their parents, writing bad poetry, <laughs> half-finished novels, spending their time in Paris cafes, and they come back to America in the 1930s amidst the Depression when they're called back home because um, the money's run out. And there they kind of sober up and realize that it's important to take a political stand. So some of the classic names associated with the last generation are the two I mentioned at the start, Hemingway and Fitzgerald. They're both Banner members of the club. Um, Cowley is uh, the diagnostician, in a sense, um, the uh, a sort of preachy oracle. Um, but you think about other people like Dos Passos, um, Gerald, 
uh, oh shoot, his name has just escaped me. Anyway, you'll edit that out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and Gertr- Gertrude uh, Stein. Yeah, Gertrude Stein. Um, and in a sense, the people I'm talking about are a lost generation, a nonfiction writing lost generation, but they differ from what we think about as the poets and the writers in one really important respect, which is rather than, you know, sitting in Paris cafes, drinking away their sorrows, instead what they do is they rush towards the action and they find in a sense that they can't separate themselves from world events, that their salient characteristic is the ways in which they're drawn into all of the crises of the 1920s and 1930s, and the 1920s and the 1930s are really just one geopolitical and financial crisis after another. And they, and they can't stay and, clear of it. And they dive into it. This is not, this is not a um, uh, people who shied away from conflict or danger. Um, the the uh, stories that you describe, the people you describe, are people who are standing on the top of a hill overseeing um, a battle below them, and they're not just writing it, they're diving down the hill and then getting into the mix. Am I right? Absolutely, yes. So one of the really important things that is happening is that they're observers, first of all, but as John Cumber says, I can't be a camera. I can't just be uh, a witness. They all feel the need in various ways to wade into the action. And so whether that is, you know, Dorothy Thompson in the 30s when she has her political column, which is called On the Record, um, you know, is read by 8 to 10 million people thrice weekly, feeling that she's raising the cry about the need for America to get involved in world events, not to sit on the sidelines, to recognize the danger that the dictators are posing, to try to stop fascism, not to leave Britain and France undefended. You've got... They're all, yeah, they're all in their various ways, trying to change people's minds and to change politicians' minds. You you talk about um, uh, the school of journalism that they grew up in and was uh, particularly unique, I suppose, to America in a sense that uh, whereas in Europe, uh, newspapers, media outlets back into the 1800s and into the 1900s, were they not very um, uh, side or philosophy-oriented or party-oriented so that uh, you would have the right... But they... These American journalists brought in this American concept of objectivity. That's what they started with, didn't they? That's right. So uh, European papers had long been affiliated with a particular political view. You know, and to some extent, American papers had a bit of that as well, or, or a lot of it, depending upon which paper we're talking about. But starting after the Second, First World War in particular, the, really the cardinal virtue in the respectable American papers newsroom, and so here think about the Chicago Daily News or the New York Times as good examples, is object, meaning that the reporter is supposed to be supporting both sides. The reporter's own sort of personal opinions are not supposed to be evident from the articles that mostly he is writing. Um, and that really is... Uh, move in journalism, in American journalism, this move to objectivity that is posed against the kind of yellow journalism of William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer. Mm-hmm. So no. the idea is that objectivity is means is going to make a newspaper that you can trust. And mm-hmm. that is a business decision on the part of those proprietors because you can sell more ads. You know, you want your paper to be the one that people of all different political stripes feel that they can read and get the news from. And that's, as I said, a business decision. That means you can sell more classified ads, that more businesses are going to want to advertise in your pages. Now, this group of reporters are very much raised in that school of objectivity, but they find it more and more difficult to actually maintain the ideals that their editors are enforcing as 
the situation in Europe heats up and radicalizes. And you know, a classic example of this is in right after the Nazi takeover in January of 1933, John Gunther is in Berlin um, reporting for the Chicago Daily News. And he sends back, as all of the Chicago Daily News correspondents are doing, reports about um, so-called brown houses where Jews and other political enemies of the Third Reich are being tortured um, about attacks on Jews, both public and in private. And his editor, who is a good liberal, uh, writes back to him and says, enough, we, you have to tell me the other side. We can't just report one side of the news. What is the other side? And Gunther's response is, there is no other side. <laughs> this is what's happening. You know, I'm not taking dictation for Goebbels. I'm not going to hand out Goebbels' press releases. Goebbels was? Goebbels, the German uh, propaganda ministry. Right. All right, before we go any further, because I, we need a context here, um, <clears throat> talking about the rise of uh, dictatorships. But we're going to take a break right now. We're talking to uh, Deborah Cohen, who is the author of a great book uh, that I've enjoyed reading called Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. And we'll talk about the Hotel Imperial in a minute. Um, she is also chairman of the History Department of uh, Northwestern University. Uh, this is John Smetanker on With Respect, and we will be right back. Back on With Respect with our guest this week, Deborah Cohen, who is the author of Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, also dean of the Department of History at, the, at Northwestern University. This is John Smetanka. All right, now we get into it. We've got these American journalists taught to be objective and to see both sides and to report so that the reader, presumably, uh, is comfortable, all of the readers are comfortable that they are getting facts and not just uh, weighted opinions, right? That's right. Now, something begins to change. What's the world of the period from 1920 to 1933 look like, not only in Europe but in the United States, but focus on Europe now? Uh, what happened after the second, uh, the First World War? So after the First World War, you have two uh, politically divergent challenges to liberal democracy. So if we think about the world going into the First World War, you would think um, everywhere there is gradual democratization, more and more people are going to get the vote, that political liberalism is on the ascendancy, or, and certainly that a liberal order of the kind that Britain represents um, is you know, becoming more and more entrenched. Um, I'm leaving aside the question of Britain's empire for the moment, because yep, I think we'll please do. come back to that. <laughs> um, what happens in the aftermath of the First World War, so settled by a peace treaty at uh, in Paris, is that the big empires, four big empires, the Russian Empire, the Habsburg Empire, the German Empire, and the Ottoman Empire are broken up. And all of these small new nations are formed or reformed if they existed in history in the midst of time previously. And these are countries where liberal democracy, the idea of establishing democracy in these places, is going to be quite a challenge because of the kind of economic pressures that these new, newly formed countries are under. And so this is really, so this is where these reporters wash up. They're in South uh, 
East Europe um, or in East Central Europe where these new states, so uh, Czechoslovakia, a larger uh, Poland, Hungary, Austria itself are being formed. And there, there are two really serious challenges to the you know, it, to the new world order that Woodrow Wilson thinks is going to be created at the Paris Peace Conference. And those two challenges are, first of all, communism. The Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 has, um, you know, essentially meant that Russia is going to be a force for spreading communism throughout the world, especially in that early period uh, of the early 1920s. And then the second force is in the ascendancy as well in the early 1920s, and that is fascism. So you have the Italian regime of Benito Mussolini, where fascism triumphs. It is then spreading through Hungary, through Poland, through Romania, um, through Austria, of course, uh, Germany. And so you have this three-cornered contest happening across the world between democracy, communism, and fascism. And these reporters, as I said, they're the witnesses, but they're also the arbiters, in a way, for a public that's looking to them for their expertise and for what they actually think is happening. Who's going to win? That's the question. So, what happens to objectivity? In that context, it becomes very difficult for the reporters to sit on the sidelines. So as they're reporting on the rise of dictatorship, all of them, uh, all the ones in my book, find Nazism to be odious and to be a, you know, a civilizational danger, meaning this is the end of the world as they know it. They see war coming and view Hitler's threats of a world war. They take them very, very seriously, really from the very start. What becomes difficult uh, for them is how do you convey the seriousness of that situation to an American public unless you show them how the world looks through your eyes? So as I said, they're all, um, you know, they all view Nazism as a civilizational danger. They have various views on Soviet communism. Some of them are at first in Transpired, others of them um, really loathe it. So Jimmy Sheehan finds Bolshevism uh, to be sort of a thrilling idea um, at first. And H.R. Uh, Knickerbocker, who's one of the other reporters in my book, goes to the Soviet Union to report and the first five-year plan, Stalin's first five-year plan, and is almost instantly disgusted by what he sees and, and appalled by it. So they have different ideas about communism, but how do you convey what you are seeing um, without showing how it is affecting your views personally? That's what they're struggling with. And in that context, objectivity begins to recede further and further away um, so much so that for someone like Sheehan, by the early 1930s, he's thinking objectivity is impossible, that all that's important is to convey the truth as he sees it, which is not a collection of facts. This is one of the things that he says again and again. So for him, for Sheehan, as I said, he's at first sort of entranced by the communist idea, as a number of Americans were. He's also an really adamant opponent of European imperialism as he sees it playing out. And so there, too, he wants to convey to Americans that, you know, you think that the French Empire, the British Empire, is something that's happening far away that you don't have to pay any attention to. But those freedom struggles are like our freedom struggle, like the American freedom struggle against the British. And we ought to take them seriously. And we ought to help these people wrest themselves free from the yoke of the European empires. So again, too, that's something that editors, you know, <laughs> are not exactly eager to print his anti-imperial diatribes. Well, it's it's controversial. Um, it now today we would say, hey, it sells papers. On the other hand, um, if you were raised in the idea of 
objectivity and catching a large audience, not just those who are in your bubble or your silo, which unfortunately we can talk about a little bit later, uh, may turn may to be what we're doing a bit today, or maybe a lot today. Mm-hmm. But but um, these folks folks change their whole and maybe journalism's whole um, method of engaging with the world. And that's exactly right. And this is something that's really important, which is what they realize is objectivity sells papers. That's what their editors and the publishers believe. But what they realize is subjectivity and emotionalism also sells papers. Mm-hmm. So someone like Dorothy Thompson, as she's writing her political columns, they're really pitched at a very high, engaged, emotional level. She's writing about mothers and babies, about civilization-level dangers. Um, she and two, as you know, personal history, which is is his breakout book, published in 1935, and it's about how does one young man come to find his place in the world between liberalism and the sort of values of the old world, which he cherishes, especially the artistic values of the old world. Now, I'm going to stop you there because you're you're talking about something which. Um, raises a whole different topic, which you raise in your book. And that is, these people, maybe all the lost generation people as well, are trying to find themselves. Who are they? Who do, what are we? Look, they bear, burrow into their souls. They burrow into their relationships, which we can talk about in a bit. But they're trying to find themselves. And we have also, at the same time, the rise of psychoanalytics and psychoanalysts, and they're into that, aren't they? This is crucial, absolutely. They are finding themselves through the world's story. So in a sense, if you say, well, the world is at this, you know, in the middle of this pitch battle, they find themselves caught up in that. So yes, they're young people. They're trying to figure out how do they fit in the world? How does America fit in the world? What does America owe to Europe and to Asia? You know, can Americans actually afford to sit on the sidelines? Um, but then they're also trying to understand how how should one live? And these are the kinds of questions that, in a sense, are evergreen. You know, young people today ask them of themselves as well. What does it mean to live in this moment? What are your moral obligations? They think a lot about those. And, they, you know, this become the really crucial questions for the reporters in my book. And as you say so rightly... They are fed through experiments in psychoanalysis. So Freud's ideas have caught fire in America, especially among the young progressive circles, um, big city circles of people, but actually much broader than that by the 1930s. And the idea that the unconscious is working in ways that you have to you know, try to figure out, you have to, to, to try to understand you know, how these various forces are working in your own decision-making, in your own emotional makeup. This is something that's completely crucial for them. And, they, and they're constantly challenging each other for their own, their, their friends or their acquaintances or their co-journalists uh, and their spouses. It's, it, it's, a, it's a community of intellectuals, maybe, yeah, some, yeah, uh, others yes, are superficial. Yeah, I think that they are intellectuals. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, in a sense, the, the the way to think about this, I think, is that psychoanalysis bursts into this generation's framework um, for trying to figure out uh, questions like, what does progress mean? How should people behave towards each other? Um. It also, for these reporters, it bursts into their actual intellectual work, which is, can you understand, how, how should you understand Hitler? For someone like John Gunther, and this is true for, um, you know, this is what he does in Inside Europe, he's applying the lessons of psychoanalysis to try to understand, as he would say, what made these monsters? Why is it that these his world historical figures, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin... Um, of Wilson, uh, Ramsey McDonald, the the liberals as well as the um, 
as well as the, the communists and the fascists. What made them what they are? And part of the answer he comes to is, well, they're made, you know, I know from Freud how they're made. They're made because of the injuries of childhood, the psychic injuries of childhood. That's part of what makes them. And those are the tales that he tells, first of all, in his reporting, although his reporters, his editors don't like it very much. And then increasingly, he's telling them in book form, a behind-the-scenes account of what makes these people tick. And what happens for this whole group of friends, as you say, rightly, you know, they're influencing each other. They begin by turning these tools on the political figures that they're covering and then start to turn them on themselves, too. So psychoanalysis is a great language of vocabulary, a great language of gossip um, in the 1920s and 30s. We're going to take another break right now. We're talking to Deborah Cohen, who is uh, Dean of the History Department of uh, Northwestern University. She is a historian and author of the book Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. This is John Spitanka, and we will be right back. back now on With Respect um, with Deborah Cohn, who's a historian, dean of the History Department, Northwestern University, and author of Last Call at the Hotel Imperial. This is John Smetanka. So Deborah, when we left, left off, uh, we found that, that this world of turmoil and, and rise of dictatorships and national movements in Europe was far outside of the understanding of most Americans, and they were brought to an understanding of it by these uh, fascinating journalists. They took up the role of the discipline of psychoanalysis, and, and not only that, but being personally present for a lot of these events, met and talked to um, thousands of leaders and uh, big people, little people, uh, throughout Europe. And... They fed off each other. I think that that's a fair summary of what's going on. And they changed the way of journalism uh, vis-a-vis the outside world, i.e., uh, we, we become advocates uh, as well as or maybe instead of being simply laboratory analysts. Um, I think that that may be the thrust of, of uh, part yes, of your history. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, and I would add one other dimension, which is that they make things newsworthy that are previously thought to be unpublishable, certainly in respectable papers, which mm-hmm. is you know something like uh, Hitler's relationship to his mother. Mm-hmm. And that's not exactly respectable newspaper fare when John Gunther is trying it out on his editors. Or um, Knickerbocker is reporting a lot about homosexuality within the Nazi movement. And again, some of this, you know, is he's he's making broad hints and is suggestive um, in his reporting. But they're opening up what are previously taboo subjects for their readers. Now, you, you're a historian, and you found, apparently, uh, because you looked for it, you studied it, you analyzed it, you found the history... Uh, underneath the surface of many of these journalists through, it looks like, diaries, uh, letters to one another, private statements at parties uh, that uh, uh, reveal something about each other, but also uh, reveal what's bubbling underneath their surface. Um, And so somebody, for example, John Gunther, writes uh, a book about uh, um, inside uh, Europe. But while that's going on, in his own personal life, there is a turmoil which mimics or uh, is paralleled by the turmoil that's going on in the world. And this applies to all of these folks. Uh, These folks have really interesting personal lives. And I'm going to say I've got to compliment you 
in the kind of things that you report about their personal lives, their sexual interactions, their their private thoughts, their fights uh, among themselves and their spouses and, and lovers and whatnot. While it is, it is um, not the great event of um, the Nazi takeover, it is a very important aspect of understanding these unique individuals. And I, I found it fascinating. Um, where did you get all this material, Deborah? I mean, it's great. So, but first of all, thank you so much. Um, I think one of the things I'm, that the book does that is really important um, is it's a book that's about the history of private life. And usually we don't know very much about private life. You know, these are the kinds of pages that people rip out of the, their diaries or the kind of letters that they burn. But with these reporters, I had a group of people who thought, because of the psychoanalysis, because of their own attempt to figure out the European leaders and the Asian leaders of the moment, that thought that all of this stuff behind the scenes was actually crucial, determinative. And so they saved all of this material. They wrote hundreds and thousands of pages about what they were feeling, what they were observing, and often side by side. So John Gunther in reporting on the 1934 uh, events in Vienna, which include a political assassination, uh, as well as a civil war, is writing about those events, but he's also in his diaries, he's writing about his marriage, really one page to the other. And so in a sense for them, what it became apparent to me is that these were inseparable. So we might tell one story that's the kind of textbook story that's about, say, the Nazi seizure of power or the Nazi takeover of, of Austria. But for people who are living through this, the kind of ways that they are interpreting what they see are also about their relationship to their spouse or their how they feel child, you know, about their children. And that we separate those things out when we tell their stories, but we really shouldn't because they didn't. And they thought it was really important not to. Well, I tell you what, I haven't read any book of history that was quite such a blend between the personal lives of major figures <clears throat> and their interaction with one another uh, and the historical events that they generated or reacted to. I found it absolutely fascinating. And I will tell you, to the reader, there are parts of it which are not pretty. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of one incident I don't need to get into, but there is a, an incident uh, in a relationship between uh, parties that um, you want to say, oh, give me a break. What, what kind of people did these things? But, yes, but this was a world. Now, there's in the few minutes left to us, uh, and I, I'm, you know, I, I don't sell books for my guests. Uh, I do urge in this case that people give some attention to this book because it's a, it is a fascinating thing, and maybe, maybe there is a predictive nature uh, for the current state of journalism, the current state of politics, not only. In, around the world, but in the United States. And that is the, uh, we have, these folks were endowed or uh, picked up great skills in wordsmithing, writing. Uh, they were voluminous writers. And advocacy, some of them were tremendous advocates on the lecture circuit. Um, but, and they did move from objectivity into advocacy do we see uh, that today? And you only have a few minutes to, to deal with a topic which can go on forever. Yes, I think the really important point that is that we oftentimes view the objectivity question in journalism as something that is strictly about journalism. In other words, you know, if only journalists could be objective today, then things would be better. I think instead, if we think about the sorts of of ways in which journalism both mirrors and is explained by our times, and then of course furthers as well, we can see that the journalists of our moment are reflecting the kind of radicalization of political culture 
that we all live in. And so rather than feeling nostalgic, you know, about the ways in which a, you know, Walter Cronkite or a Tom Brokaw operated and, and crediting them with a kind of, you know, discernment or, um, or self-restraint, that's important to think about what a different time that they actually lived in. The reporters of today are living in a time that's much more like those of the last call, last call people, um, in the sense that it's a polarized, politically fractious movement in which uh, it is very, very difficult not to take sides, in which objectivity as a business model for newspapers is increasingly less successful than a subjective mode, than an emotional mode. Now, you know, all of that comes to an end, you know, in the Second World War in a completely cataclysmic way. So the people, you know, the Walter Cronkites and the Tom Brokaws come out of a political, a moment of political consensus and middle of the roadism that reflects people's recoil and their horror from the over-the-top emotionalism and radicalization of the 1930s. And, you know, let us all just pray that we don't have to go through the, you know, cataclysm of a war, of a world war, in order to draw back from the brink. I have been fascinated by this period from the, especially the 30s and 40s, for some time. <coughs> for some time. However, um, in other books, for example, there's a, a fascinating diary, of, sort of a diary of um, uh, a famous person, uh, Susan Mary Alsup, who was uh, married to one oh, of the yes, Alsup yes, boys. Yes. Phenomenal yeah. book, lovely book, about living through the events that you're talking about. Uh, only these were mostly, much of them was post-war. Uh, Lynn Olson writes a series of books on that period of time, which I think are excellent. Exactly. And but this world, we have to, in my view, and this is editorial comment. I think we need to pay attention. I want some more objectivity. Um, at least I don't want uh, dissim dissimulation, lying in my media. I don't want that. If that sells a cause, I'm sorry. Then the cause isn't worth saving if you have to lie about it. But yes, yeah. your your the perspective of the writer is, as you point out, critical to understanding the value of the advocacy or the meaning of the advocacy, I think. And um, yes. I like that. I mean, I like that, that world of blending objectivity with subjectivity and advocacy. Yes, and I think most, you know, none of them, I mean, the idea that of lying and of outright lying and, and saying something that is not the truth would have been just anathema to any of the reporters in my book. Rather, what they're saying is they can only convey the gravity of the situation if they express to their readers how they see it, mm -hmm. how they feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that does mean calling major political figures like propaganda ministers liars. That's a very different thing from lying themselves. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. they were dedicated to the truth. It's just that they didn't think that the truth came from both sides. Well, there, both sides. there is no such thing, I don't think, as the perfect expression of reality. Um, it, there's, it all comes in episodic forms uh, in various people's perspective on what, how they view what's going on. I think there's an objective truth, but... Um, that's way beyond my view, uh, in my view, the capabilities of any journalist, any writer, any tho uh, theologian, let alone philosopher or, or historian, uh, or simple trial lawyer uh, sitting in the woods of West Michigan. At any rate. Or, or historians, right? What? So we're all just sort of doing the best that we can <laughs> to try yeah. to get closer and closer and closer to the truth. I mean, that's what we tell our students, which is that, Yes, of course, sources are partial, and it's really important to be able to understand what those partialities are. But the job of the historian is to be able to get as close as you can to what you think is an accurate account. That's the aim. Deborah Cohen, 
This has been a most enjoyable conversation with you. Unfortunately, we could go on for hours, I think. But uh, the sun is setting, and the wind is calming down, and we need to go back to our lives. That's right. We have our old fashions waiting for us, right? That's right. It's been really a pleasure to get to talk with you. And thanks so much for all of these really thought-provoking questions. Not a problem. This is John Smetanker on With Respect. And remember, our motto, if you show respect to other people, they will show respect to you. Thank you.